2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the Bible contains all we need for life and godliness. It does. It speaks with one authoritative voice about our great problem, which is sin. And it tells us there's a consequence for our sin, which is the wrath of God. The Bible is able to make us wise unto salvation because it presents to us the gospel of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible tells us that those of us who are saved by faith in the gospel are to live by faith and obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Bible is absolutely true and sufficient and authoritative. And yet, sometimes the Bible says some very hard things to us. It says things our culture doesn't want to hear. It says things that we may not want to hear. Because through the words of the Bible, God means to get in our business. He examines us. He shows us where there are unclean ways in us. And He calls us to turn from those ways back to Christ. And friends, this is not a fun experience, but it is a necessary experience. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says this, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Encountering confrontational parts of God's Word is not fun, but it is one important way that God disciplines us, that He trains us up as a parent trains up a child. And what God means to produce in us believing friends through these sometimes difficult words of instruction are His, or what He calls the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. He means for us to share His holiness. And we've seen this in recent weeks, have we not? Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that God's call on our lives, chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew, is this, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that perfection is not something we attain in this life, but it is our goal. It is what God is working us towards. He is perfecting us. He is making us more like His Son. And how does He grow us? In large part through the discipline of His Word, which shows us how we're to live. And by the power of His Spirit, which enables us to obey. And I begin with all of this this morning because as we continue our look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today, we come to three sayings of Jesus which... I think are some of his most demanding words. I think that these sayings will hit home for each of us. I think these verses are going to call our names and examine our lives, and they're going to call on all of us to make some significant changes. And what is the subject of this challenging and confrontational instruction? Well, today we're going to talk about money. Now, as soon as I say that, I know a lot of you are going to think, oh boy, it's a sermon about giving. I don't want to hear this. But this is actually not a sermon about giving today. 
This is a sermon about the attitude that makes you freeze up and get angry when you think you're going to hear a sermon about giving. Because today's sermon is about the attitude, the heart posture, and frankly, the idol of materialism. Of craving money, of living to accumulate and retain possessions. Today we're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And in these verses, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms what God thinks about materialism through the three sayings he's going to give us in this passage. So today we have three points. First, materialism misdirects your heart. Second, materialism darkens your soul. And third, materialism enslaves you to the wrong Lord. And I hope just by hearing these three points, you see these are crucial warnings. And so my prayer is we have open ears and open hearts as we consider this text today. Let's start with our first point, which is that materialism misdirects your heart. Jesus starts with a shocking prohibition, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, right there, that ought to get your attention, right? Because the vast majority of people in our country believe that this is the very core objective of our lives, right? We want to get jobs that give us enough money that we can save after we pay our bills. And if we save enough money, we hope someday to retire and live on what we've saved. And if things go really well for us financially, when we retire, we've got all this extra money to indulge in buying all those cool things we wanted all these years. The rat race of the American dream is all about laying treasures up for ourselves on earth, is it not? But here Jesus criticizes this approach. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Words that basically mean don't accumulate wealth, don't stockpile valuables, don't hoard treasure. Wow. That doesn't get your attention. You're not paying attention, right? This is very countercultural. Is Jesus forbidding his people here from being rich? More than being rich, is Jesus here forbidding his people from having a savings account? Is Jesus consigning us to only ever live on the daily bread that he told us to pray about earlier in this chapter? Is he forbidding us from storing up things for the future? We've got to be very careful here. Because on one hand, Jesus means exactly what he says with these words. And yet the Bible also says some other very important things and true things about how we must handle our finances. And we've got to read those things alongside Jesus' command and see the big picture. For starters, 2 Thessalonians 3.11 says, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there were some people in the Thessalonian church who refused to work. They mooched off the church. And Paul says with the full authority of Christ behind him, these people need to get a job and pay their own bills. In the same passage, he also says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him also not eat. Now the key here is Paul's talking about someone's willingness to work. This is not condemning those who want to find a job but can't or those who are not physically able to work because of health or age. This is a statement about those who can work, but who out of their laziness refuse to do so. And Paul says, you've got to get a job and make some money. It's not wrong to earn a wage. That is profoundly right and godly. In the same way, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
In context, Paul's talking about Christians who don't want to take care of their aging parents. And he says, this is your duty. You've got to take care of your family, especially those who can't support themselves. And Paul says, if in your laziness, you tell your family members, guess you've got to starve, that's apostasy. That is a repudiation of the faith that shows you never belong to Jesus to begin with. That's strong language, but that's what God says. So it's not just a good thing to work and make money. We are commanded to provide for our families. And this is a big problem in our society today, is it not? Everywhere I drive, I see help wanted signs. There are tons of jobs out there, and there's a lot of people who apparently just don't want to work right now because they're living off government subsidies or whatever. But Christian friends, God has called us to work. Maybe we work in the home. Maybe we work in the office. Maybe we work in the church. Certainly all of us should serve in the church. But the one thing we don't get to do is out of laziness say, I'm not going to work altogether. In this same context, Proverbs 6.6 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, the ant prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. I smile. My dad used to quote these verses to me all the time when I wanted to sleep in. But here Solomon talks about the same problem. He speaks to the sluggard, the lazy person who is averse to work, and he says, look, the snooze button seems nice, but it leads to poverty. And understand that poverty is not a good thing. Some people read the biblical warnings about wealth, and they're like, oh, poverty's good and riches are bad. Wait a minute. It's true that most of God's people throughout history have been poor, and that most of the rich are wicked, and that's usually because of persecution and exploitation. But we need to remember that the Proverbs tell us that godly wisdom often leads to wealth, and godless folly often leads to poverty. So Solomon here says, instead of indulging in sleep, we can gain wisdom by looking at the ant who stockpiles its food when it's available to eat it later. In other words, work hard and save up. That is what he says the path of wisdom is. But wait, is Jesus not just told us, don't accumulate wealth? Is this contradictory? Well, if all that Jesus said in Matthew 6 about money was verse 19, the first part of it, then I'd say, yeah, there is a contradiction. But Jesus here doesn't just say, don't stockpile wealth. He says this along with a number of other things that tell us that what Jesus is really concerned about here is not if you or I have a savings account. What Jesus is concerned about here is what is the core goal of our life. What he's doing in verse 19 is he is introducing a paradigm, an approach to life that says the ultimate goal of my life is the acquisition of money and property and valuables. And this is the dominant approach to life in our world, right? This was the dominant approach in the first century. In fact, this is how the disciples were still thinking at this point in Jesus' ministry. And we know that because here Jesus uses a present tense verb in this prohibition, which in Greek refers to ongoing action. So what he's saying is, stop doing what you're doing. Stop chasing valuables, hoping to hoard them. Okay, why? Why should we not live like this? Well, for starters, because it's not wise. Because earthly valuables don't last. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Back then, banking wasn't really a thing. You had valuables, you stashed them in your house. And what were these valuables? Well, if you had some money, you probably owned some really nice clothes. Maybe you had some tapestries of fine material. Maybe you had some valuable metal objects. But you know what's interesting? After 200 years of archaeological excavations, in the end, we really don't have many of these items today. We have a small fraction of what existed 2,000 years ago. Why is that? Because these things don't endure. They deteriorate. The fabrics that people spent all their money on got eaten by moths or rats or they got mildewed. The metals rusted. Valuables that are physical fade over time or they get lost or they get stolen. Jesus here talks about thieves who break in. This Greek verb actually refers to digging. Because in ancient Galilee, most homes were made of mud bricks. And so at night, thieves would come by and they would dig through your walls, get your stash, and leave while you didn't know they'd ever visited you. So because these sorts of things happen, Jesus says, if you try to accumulate wealth in this world, be warned, it's not the path of wisdom because wealth doesn't long endure. Now, maybe you hear this and you think, well, my home is secure. I've got a safe and a gun and an alarm system, and I've even got a ring doorbell. And most of my wealth isn't in my house anyway, so I'm not worried about moths and thieves. I am financially secure. Really? Markets go up and down, don't they? And thieves might not be digging through bricks anymore, but how many high-profile investment scams have there been in the last 20 years? What about identity theft or ransomware? And even if your stuff is well-guarded, how are you going to protect your money against inflation? against new taxes, against some random lawsuit that has your name on it. Friend, if you've learned nothing else over the last year, learn this. The system is not nearly as stable as we think it is. It doesn't take much for everything to come to a grinding halt, for everyone to suddenly clamor for new monumental changes, right? Don't imagine that you or your wealth are exempt from Jesus' warning. Worldly wealth doesn't last. Proverbs 23 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven. Easy come, easy go, right? And even if you do manage to gather enough for your lifetime, someday you're going to die. And what good will that money do for you then? Psalm 49 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. You can't take it with you, friend. Ecclesiastes 5 says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Just as he came, he shall go. And you say, well, yeah, it won't be for me, but my kids will get it. Will they? With estate taxes changing, you don't know how much you're going to get. And what if your heirs blow through the money or they get scammed? Psalm 39, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You can't control where your money is going to wind up. And even if your stash does endure and it does go to your kids, how long will it really last? For the book of James says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Friends, the days are running short, aren't they? The end is near. We don't know how long this world has left. But 2 Peter 3 tells us that soon the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Friends, this world isn't going to last long and so investing in it is not a wise strategy. So the first thing Jesus does here is he shows us a life dominated by the accumulation of wealth is a life dominated by folly. Because just like what the Romans used to say about glory, all wealth is fleeting. But in contrast to this first approach, Jesus now shows us a superior approach to life in verse 20. He says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Instead of chasing what cannot endure, Jesus says, Seek wealth which will never fade. The glories of heaven aren't subject to decay. Moths and rats aren't going to eat your eternal crowns. There won't be thieves hiding in the new creation looking how to break into your house, uh, dig through some gold brick. That's not how it works, right? Wisdom tells us to pursue the wealth that will endure. And heavenly wealth endures eternally. But what are these heavenly treasures Jesus speaks about here? Well, if you remember our recent sermons, you'll remember that the first 18 verses of chapter 6 are about Jesus speaking to believers about how we practice our righteousness how we perform good deeds which are of a spiritual nature. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says when we do spiritual-looking deeds, out of a desire to gain the applause of people, whatever reward we otherwise would have had from God is lost. And Jesus then applied this to three contexts, three specific deeds uh, the deeds of giving money to the poor, of prayer and fasting. And in each case, Jesus repeats this warning. If you do these good things to get other people to notice you, you get nothing. But when you engage in these practices or other practices like them, not to draw attention to yourself, but to glorify God, Jesus says three times in this chapter, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus says there are rewards which are to be gained by how we live and what we do which are connected to our motivations. Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about how God will someday evaluate the work of church leaders in Corinth. He says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done is built, has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. What Paul says is this, it's not just the work or the service that we render that's evaluated. The hidden things that stand behind our service will also come to light in the end. And God will reward us based on that, believing friends. All right, well, what sorts of deeds done with proper motivations lead to eternal rewards? Matthew 5 says, suffering persecution and loving those who persecute you leads to reward. Matthew 6 says that generosity to the poor, prayer, and fasting leads to a reward when done out of the right motivation. 
Matthew 10 and 1 Timothy 6 indicate that generosity to fellow believers likewise receives a reward. James 1 and 2 Corinthians 4 tell us we gain eternal rewards as we suffer affliction in this world, but endure it steadfastly and in a godly way. 2 Timothy 4 tells us there are rewards for those who desire the return of Christ. 1 Peter 5 says there are rewards for those who serve well in the office of elder. 2 Corinthians 5 says we will receive rewards based on what we do in the body. So generally, if you want to know about rewards, here's the idea. What we say, what we think, how we respond to the circumstances of life, the deeds we do in the name of the Lord, deeds of obedience in acts and, and in thoughts, these are the things that generate eternal rewards if we go about them with the right motivation. So much is said in the Bible about eternal rewards. But what exactly are these rewards? We're not told much about their specific nature. Most often the Bible speaks of them as crowns. And this picture, along with passages like Matthew 19, 19, or 29, 19.29 and 25.21, seem to indicate that eternal rewards involve measures of position and authority in the world to come. Exactly what that means, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. But what is clear is this, friends. There are eternal rewards, and you'd much rather have them than lose them. And so Jesus says, if you want to know how to live, if you want to know what aim your life should pursue, chase that which endures. Live to accumulate treasures in heaven. Unfading, eternal, glorious rewards that come from living for God, hoping to glorify Him. Don't live your life chasing treasures in this world that won't long endure. Now that makes sense, right? Go after what lasts. But now Jesus makes another argument, further explaining why we should pursue heavenly treasure rather than earthly treasure. Look at verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very famous words. But I think D.A. Carson is right when he says, These words are often misheard. We look at the words on the page, but we think that they say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Meaning, if you fix your heart on God, you'll get lasting treasure. And if you fix your heart on the world, you'll get the treasure that doesn't last. Now, that's true, but that's not what this verse says. He doesn't say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what's that mean? When ancient people thought about the heart, they meant the center of our beings, the way that we today talk about our minds. So what Jesus says is this, your heart, your mind, yourself follows your treasure. What you invest in shapes who you are. And friends, this is an invaluable, profound truth that I've seen again and again in my years in ministry. What we most hope in, what we most pursue shapes our character. Let me illustrate this with a truth that's seen all the time in American Christianity today. Churches are filled with rich and influential people. And these rich guys, because of their wealth and their worldly stature, often wind up with positions of leadership in churches and Christian organizations because these institutions often use the wisdom of the world in deciding who their leader should be. And by and large, these rich guys get in office, and they all engage in the same kind of leadership. They all give the same kind of counsel, which is this. Don't rock the boat. Play it safe. Don't do anything that's going to upset the bottom line or drive people away. And that's great advice if you're managing a bunch of money. 
But that's not great advice if you're stewarding the Lord's flock. Because our top priority is to be obeying God's word. But see, here's the point. The things that matter the most to these kind of guys, their pursuit of worldly wealth, has dragged them along and reshaped their hearts. Friend, if you look at your life and you say, I know there's a really hard thing I ought to do, but I'm afraid to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to obey God in this. It's probably, it's overwhelmingly likely it's because of this principle. Because you are pursuing something in this world. Money or reputation or influence. You are pursuing something which can't last, which you can't take with you. And these things are causing you to become risk averse and live by something other than faith. What you value, what you treasure will shape your priority and your attitudes and your character. And when you chase the stuff of this world, the formation that happens in you is not conformity to the image of Christ. It is conformity to the wisdom of the world. And so, friends, this is why we need to pursue treasures in heaven. Not only because they last forever, but because when you invest in the world to come, you will find that your heart follows your treasure you will be ever more drawn to God's desires. You will be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ who always lived to please the Father. And you will gain more heavenly treasure and more sanctification on earth. So that's our first point today. Your heart follows your treasure and so materialism misdirects your heart. This leads to our second point, which is that materialism will darken your soul. Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? At first, this seems like a very puzzling statement. Jesus is talking about eyes and lamps and light and bodies. What does he mean? When you find a part of the Bible you don't understand right away, I always say, just keep reading. Let the context guide your interpretation. So let's look at the context. Verses 22 and 23 come after verses 19 to 21, in which Jesus has given a warning about materialism. They come before verse 24, where Jesus gives another warning about materialism. They come before verses 25 to 34, in which Jesus is going to say, don't be anxious about your possessions, which is another warning against materialism. So we're in the middle of a giant section about materialism. So it would be very strange if these two verses were not also about materialism, right? All right, so these verses are about materialism, but what do they say? What do they mean? Well, here we've got to work through the text and we've got to do it slowly. What Jesus does here is he illustrates a spiritual truth by making a physical metaphor. He's going to talk about how the human body works, and as he does so, he's going to reveal a spiritual truth about the dangers of materialism. The metaphor is all about the relationship of the eye to the body. And Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye lets light into the body. If you don't have eyes, you don't have light, you can't see and you don't know where to go, right? Our eyes give us light so we have direction. But now Jesus is going to tell us that our eyes can wind up in one of two medical conditions. The first condition is described in most English translations with the word healthy. The Greek word is hoplous, and what's interesting is that hoplous doesn't actually mean healthy. It usually means something like single-mindedly 
or sincerely. It's often used in the New Testament to speak of integrity. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity, same word, and godly sincerity. 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, same word, and pure devotion to Christ. Ephesians 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere, same word, heart as you would Christ. Often the same word is used to talk about having integrity and intentionality and being generous with your money. It's how it's used three times in the famous passage about giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For instance, 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Paul speaks of a church who in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Same word. Or in Romans 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And he says the one who contributes should do so in generosity. Same word. Now, none of these meanings get at the idea of a healthy eyeball. The idea behind this word is a simple, focused righteousness that cares about other people and gives to them generously. Say, so why does it say healthy? Well, because the translators know that that's the background, but they look here and they see Jesus is giving a physical metaphor about eye disease. So they said, well, the best way to get this idea across is healthy. But I want you to see there is a rich ethical background behind this word. So Jesus says you can have a healthy eye. Or he says in verse 23, you can have a bad eye. In Greek, this is the standard word for evil. Jesus here talks about an evil eye. Now, you may know that in many cultures, this phrase, the evil eye, refers to a witchcraft practice of cursing someone. Okay, that is not what Jesus is warning against here. The background here is something else. It comes from Proverbs 28, 22, which says, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. And in Hebrew, this phrase, the stingy man, is literally the man with an evil eye. We find this same expression in Matthew 20, verse 15, where we find in a parable, a man is complaining about some money that he got. He thinks he should have gotten more. And the, the person he's complaining to says, is your eye evil because I am good? Again, the evil eye seems to be the eye of materialism. And so the ethical background to this phrase, the evil eye, is someone who demands what is his and who wants to clutch what is his. This is the opposite of integrity and generosity. So, there are two options. The life of integrity and generosity or the stingy life of materialism. And Jesus, in this metaphor, says these two lives are like a body with a healthy eye and a body with a diseased eye. All right, what are the consequences of these lives or these two eyes? The person with the healthy eye causes his whole body to be full of light. On the most literalistic level, the body gets the light it needs from a healthy eye. It's able to see where it's going. But of course, this term light is theologically loaded, right? Throughout the Bible, light describes the glory of God and the righteous life of Jesus and the righteous life we are to live. Matthew 5 tells us we are the light of the world. Our good deeds are to call unbelievers to repent and glorify God. And this is what is produced when believers live by an ethic of righteousness and sincerity and generosity. This sort of life produces what God intends to produce in the believer. It generates the testimony God means for the believer to display before the unbelieving world. But 
if instead of that sort of life, if we choose to live a life of greed and materialism, what does Jesus say that produces? He says your whole body will be full of darkness. Again, on the most literalistic level, a diseased eye cannot see the light correctly. It is dimmed or it's not there at all. It's blind. The eye is blind. You don't know where you are. You don't know what you should be doing. You lose your bearings. But beyond this, darkness is always a symbol of horrible things in the Bible, right? Sin and judgment. So Jesus says the materialistic life leads to some very bad places. Friends, materialism and greed are severely counterproductive for us spiritually. They run in directly the opposite direction that God means for us to go in. They impede our sanctification. They extinguish the light that we should be displaying before the world to call them to the Savior. And this is worse than we know. Listen to the last thing Jesus says here. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Friends, the world is lost. It is a dark place. Jesus has said you are the light of the world because you reflect the true light of the world who is Jesus, right? But if our light is ruined, how horrific is that? If we who should see clearly, are left in blindness and darkness. It's a horrible picture. It's a dire warning. And so if we put all this together, I think this is the idea. Believing, friends, we have a choice. We can live with integrity and generosity, a life of good deeds. It's not about calling attention to us, but that's marked by compassion for the poor and for needy believers. A life that reflects God's excellence and draws unbelievers to Christ. That's the life that gets rewarded. Or you can live like an unbeliever. You can adopt the priorities of the fallen world. Of course the fallen world is materialistic. What else do they have to trust in or hope in? If you're a believer, you're called to a lot more than that. But if you say, wealth and possessions are more real to me, and more important to me than all the crowns that heaven can offer. I value the transitory over the eternal. If you choose to live like that, be warned. It will corrupt you. It will blind you. It will hinder God's intent to sanctify you. It will destroy your witness. It will damage the cause of Christ. And friends, I've seen this so many times. If you live like this, you won't just take yourself down. You will bring ruin into the lives of other people who are looking to you. It is terrible enough that our evil world lives in darkness. But if the people who are to be light become beacons of darkness, that is the pinnacle of wretchedness. And that's the warning. Materialism will corrupt you and resist everything that God purposes for you. So how do you use your eyes? Do you look out and say, oh, there's something cool. I've got to get my hands on that. Do you endlessly covet and desire? I want what looks good and what feels good and what makes me feel important. I want to be the one that other people look to, the one they envy. Or maybe you fall into the trap we've seen in the first 18 verses. You look around for people who you want to applaud you. And you think, how can I calculate them? How can I calculate into manipulating them to think I'm holy so they'll applaud me? The path of hypocrisy. Beware, friends, these are the things Jesus is warning against. Instead, put your eyes to what God wants you to put your eyes to. Look for needs that you can meet. Look for people who you can comfort because your light follows your eye. 
So beware because materialism darkens your soul. This leads to our last point, which is that materialism enslaves you to the wrong master. You might say, yeah, yeah, Ben, this, this isn't really a big deal. This is just how we have to live in this world to get by. What's so wrong with me wanting to, to do well? You know, my, I was raised this way. My parents wanted me to do better than they did. And society tells me this is how I should live. What's the problem? Well, Jesus has shown us materialism is folly. It reshapes our affections in a corrupting way. It darkens our soul. It destroys our witness for Christ. But if none of those things persuade you, Jesus has saved his most compelling argument for last. Because now Jesus concludes with this, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Famous words, but let's think through them anew. Jesus says there are two masters. In Greek, this word master is the word Lord, and Lord is an important word. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is usually used to speak of God. So here's the idea. There are two lords who demand your service, who demand your worship. In one corner, we've got the triune God, the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the other corner is money. Now, some of the older English versions preserve the odd term mammon here. You've probably heard of mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word meaning money. What's really interesting is that when Matthew wrote this book, he did not translate Jesus' Aramaic word mammon into the Greek word for money. He just wrote mammon down in the manuscript. Why? Like it's a proper name. And I think the idea is this. Jesus is portraying money to us as an idol with its own name. And so here's your choice. The true God, Yahweh, or the false God, Mammon. Who are you going to worship? You say, man, that sounds so extreme. It is. It's extreme. That doesn't mean that it's false. Materialism is a false God. How so? Well, let's start with this. What's worship? A lot of us say worship is singing in church. That's not the Bible's definition of worship. Romans 12 tells us what the worship is that we owe to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship is what you give yourself to, body and mind. That's what God said in the Old Testament, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. God says the right response to the death of Christ is that believers should dedicate ourselves to him, body and mind, in every deed and thought. An uncompromising, comprehensive, total worship. That's what God's after. You know, mammon demands the same worship. Richest man in the world of his day was J. Paul Getty. And Getty said, If you have no money, you always think about money. And if you have money, you already only think about money. That's the worldview of mammon. If you lack it, you need it. If you have it, you clutch it. You think about it. You crave it. You seek it. You get it. You're happy for a moment. And then you say, I want more money. It's the same thing. It's totalizing. Materialism unceasingly demands your physical and mental energy. It demands your worship. 
Which is why the Bible says in Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, the materialistic desire for more and more, is idolatry because mammon is a false god that demands your worship. And so today you need to know Christ and mammon both demand your service. In fact, when Jesus uses the word serve here, this is the Greek verb meaning to be enslaved to. So the picture here is not that you have two bosses, mammon who you serve from nine to five and Jesus who you serve the rest of the time. No. The picture is there are two slave masters, and they both demand your allegiance, your effort, your worship, your everything. And in the end, you will only be enslaved to one of these two masters. Now, you might not like that. You might say, well, I'm nobody's slave. I'm free. That's just what the, Jew, the Jews said to Jesus in John 8 when he made this same point. Friends, everybody's a slave to something. Either you're a slave to God in Christ or you're a slave to sin. And the question is, whose slave do you want to be? That's the question Paul posed in Romans 6.16. 6, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Those are your only choices. You can be a slave of, of sin or you can be a slave of God. Unbelievers are slaves to sin all the time. But the good news is, believing friend, Jesus has set you free from bondage to sin and death through his cross. You are free to live and serve Jesus, which is true freedom and joy and peace. But are you going to live in the freedom of serving God? Or are you going to live like an unbeliever and say, I want to serve sin? Paul says in Romans 6, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. That's how it's supposed to work. But many who claim the name of Christ wind up living like unbelievers in this area. Instead of adhering to the lordship of Jesus, they decide that what really matters is money. And tragically, they think they can have it both ways. That they can still serve Jesus and have Jesus' approval while building a life that at its core is all about the pursuit, acquisition, and retention of wealth in this world. But I want you to listen to me carefully. And more than me, I want you to listen to Jesus carefully in verse 24. Because he says you cannot serve God and money. You might be thinking, yeah, I can. Then you're telling Jesus he's a liar. You can't do it. Jesus doesn't accept that kind of half-hearted service. He won't reward it. And frankly, materialism won't accept or reward that kind of half-hearted service either. Because if you really want to make it big in this world... Materialism does demand all your attention, not part of it. To truly succeed in either venture, in Christianity or in wealth acquisition, you have to be single-minded in your pursuit. And at the same time, serving both Christ and mammon is impossible. Because to be a slave is to devote your labor, your attention, to devote your whole person to someone else. Think about this in the context of holding two jobs. I don't know if you've ever held two jobs at the same time. If you have, you know it's hard to work both jobs, right? You invariably prioritize one over the other. You, you just don't have the time or the energy to do both equally. But again, Jesus isn't just talking about having two bosses here. He's talking about having two lords, two masters who are entitled to absolutely rule over you all the time. 
You cannot be absolutely ruled by two different lords, especially when those lords are at war with each other, when they're in diametrical opposition, when serving one means working against the other. Because when you serve Jesus, you're working against the wisdom of the world. You're working against materialism. And when you serve mammon, you're working against Jesus. You cannot effectively divide your loyalties between these two lords. And to say, well, I, I think I can. When you do that, you're like the man described in, in James chapter 1, verse 5. The double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. It is nonsensical, impossible, frustrating, and futile to try to serve both Christ and money. Your affections cannot be equally divided between them. You can serve only one. And friend, at the present, you are serving only one. So who are you serving? Here are some questions for you to ponder. And me, for me too, right? What's your mind linger on? The pursuit of holiness or the maintenance of your financial position? What worries you more? Displeasing Jesus or the reduction of your net worth? What would you rather see? Your kids grow up holy or your kids grow up financially secure? What do you use your eyes for in this area? To look for cool new toys that you can enjoy or looking for people to give to? What do you give your time to? Meditating on scripture and prayer or lingering over your bank statement and stock prices? What do you want to save most? Money for a big expense in the future or the lost people that God has put around you? What do you most want to have when you die? A stack of money on earth or a bunch of crowns in heaven? Only you know what answer your heart gives to those questions. But you need to understand today that Jesus is a jealous Lord and he will not share his glory or the worship he's entitled to with anything else. And Jesus says here, you can serve me or you can be an idolater. And that's the choice. And don't be mistaken, friends. A life that is only ever devoted to idolatry, a life that unrepentantly worships money rather than Jesus, is a life that really may not belong to Jesus at all. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a big deal. And you know, there's a lot of sins on that list that we love to talk about, right? You need to know God sees materialism as one of those sins, as that bad, as that evil. And friends, you need to know that in the end there will be people in hell who thought they belonged to Jesus, but in truth, who never repented from their idolatry of money, who lived their whole lives only ever worshiping the false god mammon. And you need to know that in the end there will be some true believers, many, who could have enjoyed fabulous eternal rewards, but who forfeited them because they wasted many years worshiping at the altar of mammon. So beware, friends. Materialism would have your crowns. It is an idol that would rule over your life and dominate you with sin. Now again, I'm not saying it's bad to make money or to be wise with your money or to enjoy using the money that God has given you. I'm not saying that there can't be rich believers. The Bible tells us Abraham and, and Job and David and Joseph of Arimathea, they were loaded, right? But the Bible tells us rich believers like that are a rarity. What I am telling you though is this. 
The materialism, the worship of the stuff of this world is utterly incompatible with the worship of Jesus. You can only serve one of these lords. So as the famous words of the book of Joshua go, choose this day whom you will serve. There is a way of life. There is a way of death. What will it be? And maybe you'll say, but, but my family needs me to be a materialist right now. But you know what's better than having a bunch of cash and leaving a big stack for your relatives? Being godly and leaving them with an enduring legacy of righteousness. So yes, friends, work. And yes, save. And yes, be wise with your money. But beware because the love of money is idolatrous and it threatens to destroy you and me. I'm going to read a long passage here from 1 Timothy 6, which I think says everything that needs to be said. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful dangers that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be arrogant, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, which frankly is all of us, from a global perspective, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Society tells you there's a good life, go get it. Friends, that is not truly life. Invest in the kingdom, serve Jesus, seek treasures in heaven, and as you do, those treasures will lead your heart your eye, and your whole self to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray.